as you take in your seat. You can grab your Bible and open up to Proverbs chapter 7. And as you're turning there and getting yourself situated, I want to begin by asking you a question. If you were to write a letter to your child or maybe to a, a loved one in your life, somebody that you hold dear, and you were going to write a letter that was filled with wisdom for how they ought to live their life, what is it that you would focus on? What would take up the majority of space, or maybe more space than other things that you could possibly write about? Where would you focus your attention? What do you believe is most important to communicate? Well, what we find out in Proverbs chapter 7, really in chapter 5 through 7, is that Solomon thought it was incredibly important to major on sexual purity. Purity and the fight against impurity plays a dominant role in the first nine chapters of the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 1 through 9 seems to have a unique flow to it. It really develops kind of in a strategic order. Once you get past chapter 9, it seems like it's a little bit more piecemeal. The wisdom is kind of sprinkled and it comes back around to, to different topics that have been addressed before. But through, in 5 through 7, Solomon kind of pulls us into this parable, this unique situation where we're forced to consider the seriousness of purity. See, why, why is this such a major focus for Solomon? Why should it be such a major focus for us? Here's why. Because perhaps no sin can grab you so early and keep you so long. And perhaps no sin can deceive you so easily and destroy you so quickly. This isn't something that... Solomon just observed from a distance, remember? If you know the story of Solomon, you know that this issue, purity, sexual purity, is deeply personal to him. Just, just remember his story for a moment and imagine your life growing up as Solomon, a child in the house of King David. More than that, remember that every time Solomon looked in the mirror, it was an opportunity for him to remember his father's sexual sin. He was, after all, the son of Bathsheba, the woman that David committed adultery with. He, he took this woman Bathsheba, this woman who wasn't his wife, he sent for her and took what was not his. He committed grievous sin, and then he tried to conceal the sin by murdering her husband. David went an entire year without confessing the sin to the Lord and had to be called out by the prophet Nathan in dramatic fashion. And the consequences for David's sin had serious ramifications on his family. The child from that union died. God promised that the sword would not leave Solomon's house. It was ravaged by sin. This is Solomon's childhood, knowing that his father committed this kind of grievous sin. But it's worse than that. You see, Solomon himself struggled with sexual purity in his life. So much so that at one point in his life, it would lead him away from worshiping the one true and living God and would pull him towards the worship of idols. Well, this is deeply personal. So when Solomon writes to his children, you can imagine him writing not from an ivory tower somewhere, simple truths, 
but truths that he wished he had embraced and put into practice in his own life. When you look at the life of David and Solomon, you see that they were deeply affected by sexual sin, but I want to remind you as well that they, their lives are also a testament to the grace of God, to the grace of God that forgives, to the grace of God that redeems, and the grace of God that restores even the most grievous of sins. And you see, it is God's grace that helps us advance purity in our lives and avoid impurity in our lives, and that's what we're going to look at this morning from Proverbs chapter 7. Let's look first at this, how to avoid impurity. By the way, while this applies directly to sexual sin, and I just want to remind you that this really is a battle plan for fighting sin in general. So, you may be here this morning like, well, this really isn't my struggle, and by the grace of God, that's not me. That's fine. You will find in this chapter and in this sermon principles that you can apply to any single struggle with sin in your life. And in fact, I would urge you to do so, to look at the entirety of your life and the battle with sin and the fight that we're all called to fight. And that leads us into the first way we avoid impurity, and that's this, fight the sinful flesh. We must fight the sinful flesh. We drop down here into verse 6, and we see Solomon kind of narrating a situation, a scenario. He's giving a parable of sorts, and here's what he says in verse 6. He says, for at, uh, at the window of my house, I have looked out through my lattice. Picture the scene. And I have seen among the simple... I have perceived among the youths a young man, here it is, listen, lacking sense, passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. The idea of darkness is used often in the Scriptures metaphorically to speak of sin, evil deeds, wickedness. And here, the situation is so obvious, it hardly needs unpacking. We have this picture of a young man, and he's described as somebody who is lacking sense. He's simple-minded. He's feeling restless early one evening, and he takes a walk. He's curious. He's heard about a certain part of town, or maybe to contemporize the situation, or a certain site on the internet. So there he goes, and he's probably thinking to himself, I can handle this. I'm strong. Besides, I need to see things for myself. I need to experience life to the fullest. This is what the book of Proverbs identifies as a fool. And here's a principle to embrace in your life. Sin makes us stupid. It makes us fools. It makes us unwise. And Solomon paints a picture of a young man who seems so unaware of his own sin nature. He's unaware of the power of sin. He's unaware of the presence of sin in his own life and in the world around him. And then, therefore, he is unaware of the potential for sin in his own life. And you see, fighting the flesh requires informing the mind. This is where we must begin. You see, if you lack sense when it comes to the doctrine of sin, you will quickly be devoured by sin. 
If you don't understand that you are a sinner by nature, that your flesh is bent and gravitates towards sinful passions, if you don't understand that the world system around us is pulling at you and pulling you towards sinful behavior, if you don't understand that Satan himself is after you and he's trying to attack you and drag you into sin, you will inevitably become a victim of sin. Lesson one, don't be simple-minded when it comes to sin. Don't be ignorant to the power and the presence and the potential of sin in your life, and especially towards sexual sin. Listen, let me make this as clear as possible. Biblically speaking, not one of us is inherently good. We are inherently sinful because of the fall. We are all, according to the Scriptures, sinners who fall short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. Not one of us is deserving of God's grace and kindness. Not one of us could earn our righteous standing before God. And here's why this is so important to embrace, because it reminds us that we are not as strong as we think we are. Let me say this as as clearly as possible. You are capable of far more than you think you are when it comes to sin in your life. Parents, let me encourage you. You need to teach your kids about sin nature. You need to teach your kids about the power of sin within them and outside of them. You need to teach them about the presence of sin that they're going to experience and the draw towards the sinful tendencies of the flesh. You need to teach them specifically, listen, about sexual sin. That's what Solomon is doing. He's so concerned for for his children, and and God, by the way, by extension, is so concerned for his children that he highlights this in such a profound way. The reality is, if you don't teach your kids these things, somebody else will. Your kids are being discipled, and by the way, so are you. Discipled by media, discipled by peers, discipled by a school curriculum, discipled by anything and everything that Satan will use to get a grip on the life and heart of your children. So you're like, well, when do I have to start talking to my kids about this? I'm not going to give you an age number. You need to be wise about this, but let me just give you a principle. You need to begin talking about these things earlier than you think you should and more often than you want to. We are living in a hyper-sexualized culture. And by the way, parents, this applies to you as well. You need to constantly be reminded of your propensity towards sin. You need to be constantly reminded of your own sin nature. Why? Why? So that you keep your guard up. Some of you with young kids right now, listen, I'm convinced that we got a young church and and we have a a lot of people between the ages of 30 and 50. Let me encourage you. This is a critical point in your life. Life is busy. Life is tiring. Things are exhausting. Listen, I'm telling you right now, this is when you got to get the guard up. Do not let down. David is a case in point, isn't he? Solomon himself, they weren't young when they fell to sexual sin. Secondly, if you want to avoid impurity in your life, do this. Flee the enticing temptation. The story gets incredibly powerful here. And we see temptation being fleshed out in narrative form. It says in verse 10, And behold, the woman meets him dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. 
Now in the street, now in the market, and at every corner she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him, and with bold face she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I have paid my vows. So now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. I have spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love, for my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. At full moon he will come home. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. The imagery here, listen, is carefully crafted to demonstrate the subtle and sneaky and relentless nature of temptation that we all experience, especially when it comes to sexual sin. The path here of temptation, it's gradual, it's intelligent, it's intentional. You see, sexual sin is alluring because it promises secrecy. Did you catch that here? It whispers in your ear, no one will ever know. You won't get caught. You're all alone. It's just you and your computer. It's just an unassuming, lustful glance that you are really good at hiding. It's just a little flirting with somebody who's not your spouse. Some stranger in some strange place. You see, it promises anonymity. I'm not hurting anybody. What's wrong with indulging my desires just a little bit? Sin makes us so stupid. You know, temptation is common to man. And the issue here is not whether you are being tempted but whether you are aware of it and striking back. Paul uses the word flee in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18. He says, flee sexual immorality. He tells Timothy to flee youthful passions or lusts. And the word itself, flee, it, it invo evokes sorry, uh, the story of Joseph, doesn't it? When you think of fleeing sexual sin and temptation, Joseph just pops into your mind. There he is, rising in power, and he is being seduced by Potiphar's wife. The temptation, the opportunity to sin is right in front of him, and yet he serves as such a sweet example. He flees her presence. He runs as fast as he can, as far as he can. He leaves his coat behind. He doesn't care what he has to give up, what it will cost him. He just knows that he wants to fight impurity and to flee temptation. And when you read this parable, the implied truth there is this, that this, this young man, you're supposed to read this and go, what is this young man doing? Is he crazy? He shouldn't have been going down that street. He shouldn't have been out that late. He should not have been talking to that woman. He should have cut this off a long time ago. He should have gotten out of there. And you see, to flee the enticing temptation in our lives, we must establish moral fences in our lives. 
A moral fence is, is, is simply a line that we draw, morally speaking, and we say, I am not going past this line. I want to protect myself, like a fence protects you, from impurity, ungodly behavior. There's lots of examples of moral fences, and we've all heard plenty of them, especially when it comes to dating. And I'm not looking to bind your conscience with any principle, but I am calling you to embrace the wisdom of moral fences. There ought to be things in your life that you have committed to simply not doing, places you're not going to go, things you're not going to do, because you know they're exposing you to temptation that will make it very difficult to resist. When I was a kid, my parents used to tell us when we were watching television, a garbage in, garbage out. Or they'd tell us even when we were listening to the radio, garbage in, garbage out. Right? You ever hear that phrase? You ever use that phrase, parents? Right. I hated it when I was a kid. I, ha- I despised it. I hate it. I wish I would have heeded it as a kid. This is a, this is a biblical principle. Listen, garbage in, garbage out. I, and we used all the excuses, right? You listen to, to whatever music. I just, I just like the, the beat. I like the melody. Yeah, okay, that might be true too, but I'm telling you right now, listen, what you willingly expose yourself to will eventually entice you. You can't listen to that stuff, and you have to realize that whatever you put it, whatever you're watching, it is beginning to shape the way you think. It's beginning to create or to impress or to foster desires and passions in your heart, even sometimes without you being aware of it. We just have to be so much wiser with what we expose ourselves to. And by the way, the world we live in is relentless with this. We are being hammered by this sexual revolution. It is just sweeping across our kids, our schools, our TVs, our media. It's all around us. We have to be willing to draw some lines and say, I will not watch these kind of things. I will not listen to these kind of things. I'm just not going to do it. Because I'm more concerned about purity and protecting my heart and living for God's glory. You never fall very far from your sin. You don't fall into grievous sin by accident. It's one little step at a time. The devil is in the details. Let's start taking care of the details. Finally, you want to avoid impurity. Fear the destructive consequences. And this is the weightiest of all that Solomon writes. The temptation, the bait has been laid and the hook begins to set. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. Listen to this language. It's so vivid. All at once he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter. Or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not No, Listen, listen. He does not know that it will cost him his life. This is serious. And then listen to his heart. Listen to the plea. And now, oh, sons, listen to me. You can just hear his experience in the background. Hear his life growing up. Hear the knowledge of watching his father's sin wreak havoc on his own family. Listen to me and be attentive to my words, the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. 
Do not stray into her paths. For many a victim as she has she laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is in the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. He can't get more vivid than this. The path of sexual sin is bound up with empty promises and is filled with incredible pain. Listen, sin overpromises and underdelivers every time, especially sexual sin. No sin kills as violently, graphically, and silently as sexual sin. It is deceptive, and by the time you realize what's happening, you're already dead. The temptation, by the way, only works if the consequences of the sin are concealed from us. In times of temptation, isn't this true in your life, maybe even while engaging in sin, we rarely look towards the consequences. We're tunnel-visioned when it comes to sin. We're fixated on meeting our perceived needs, willing to forsake everything for the temporary and fleeting pleasures of momentary sin. Sin makes us stupid. The consequences, the damage of sexual sin is massive. You say, well, give me some examples. I could stand up here and tell you story after story of people I have talked to, people I know who have done so much damage. You know this in your own life. You've watched it in others. You've experienced it in your own life. Let me just give you a few ways that sexual sin does damage and may be doing damage to you right. This may be for you right now because right now you are being enslaved to this sin. It is dominating your life. Listen, sexual sin warps your sense of right and wrong. It corrupts your thinking. It weakens your conscience. It quenches the Holy Spirit. It perverts your understanding and expectations of sexuality. It distorts your marriage and your role within it. It decreases your spiritual impact and joy. It distracts you from daily tasks. It destroys marriages and relationships that you hold dear to you. It enslaves you and exponentially increases your sins because sins never remain isolated from one another. They are compounding, and they lead to further and further degrees of sinfulness and selfishness. It sets you up, listen, to lose everything, maybe even your own soul. Because as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, those who practice sexual immorality, if it's the pattern of your life, it is the characteristic of your life, listen, those who practice sexuality will not, sexual immorality, will not inherit the kingdom of God. And Solomon's point here, here's what he wants you to see. You are on the verge of destroying your life when it comes to sexual sin. And you will potentially destroy your life if you do not see the monstrous nature of the sin that you are committing or the sin that you have the potential to commit. It must become so horrific to you that it loses its enjoyment. The consequences must be before your eyes so you know the cost and you refuse. You're so terrified of the consequences that you refuse to walk down that path. Man, this is heavy. It is heavy. This is incredibly weighty, and it's intended to be by God. We must avoid impurity, but we need to know this, secondly, how to pursue purity. And and I know, listen, all of us are sexual sinners at some level. We all are. 
And every, every one of us knows the slavery of it, the inescapable regret and shame of it. Sin touches everything we are. None of us is perfect. None of us is strong. Amen? And we all need, listen, we all need merciful liberation from our past and gracious help for our future. We need a massive cleansing that only God can give. We need a strength and power that only God can provide. And I want to quickly just look at three ways to pursue purity from Proverbs here. And the first is this, fear the Almighty God. This is where the pursuit of all purity must begin. The fear of the Lord, Proverbs 1-7 says, is the beginning of knowledge, and fools despise wisdom and instruction. I'm just taking you right back to the thesis of this book. Okay? This is the driving theme of this book. You want to know where wisdom begins and ends? It is in the fear of the Lord. You cannot have wisdom without the fear of the Lord. And, and this, this language, by the way, is simply Old Testament language for what the New Testament calls being born again, conversion experience. See, because of our sin nature, something deep inside us must change. Because that sin nature is so pervasive and all-encompassing, we need a new heart, the Old Testament says. Our old heart is bent towards sin. It loves sin. It desires sin. That's the fleshly part of us. But in the new covenant, we get a new heart. A heart that loves God and longs to live for His glory. A heart that longs for holiness and righteousness and purity. We need a total renovation from the inside out. And the way to advance purity and fight sin begins right here, listen, with complete surrender and submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. Before we can fight sin, we need to be saved from the power of sin. Before we can find victory in our battle, we need to be saved from the penalty of sin. And we need the encouragement and the hope that one day we will be saved from the very presence of sin. You see, you can have all the moral fences in the world, but if you do not have a new heart, you will climb over those fences all day long. You'll find holes in the fence to squeeze through. You will kick that fence down if it's standing in your way. But you see, Jesus is the solution for our sin-loving hearts. He died and He rose so that we could be forgiven and set free. So if today you're here and you do not have that, the power and the freedom of forgiveness, then the call for you is to do this. You, you want to begin this journey of purity? Repent and believe and receive the pure life of Jesus Christ on your behalf. Look to Him as your only hope for salvation, your only hope for freedom, your only hope for true and meaningful and everlasting life. But if you're here today and you're saved and you're struggling, like this is, you're just struggling and this has got a grip on your life and you're, you're enslaved or you're dabbling in it, then, then here, the answer is the same. You've got to begin right here. You have to elevate the fear of the Lord in your life. You have to today say, Lord, I am committing myself to you and to your lordship. You are God, you are king, and I am not. I live for your glory, not mine. I live for your pleasure, not my pleasure. You have to embrace the grace of God that's offered to you today. Grace that is greater than all of our sin. You have to be able to say with Paul in 
1 Corinthians chapter 6, I am not my own. I have been bought with a price, so I will glorify God in my body. Next, you want to advance purity in your life? Flee to the perfect resource. And here in chapter 7, we see this so evident. Look at verse 1 through 6, through 5, sorry. He says, my son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call insight your intimate friend to keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. You see, it's not just what we flee from, it's what we flee to. We can't just run away We have to run towards God. We run to Christ first for our salvation, and then we run to Christ continually in the Word of God for our sanctification and our spiritual growth and health. I mean, you can't get away from the language, the commandments, the teaching. Write them on the tablet of your heart. All of this pulls us back, by the way, into Deuteronomy chapter 6, where it's the parents' responsibility to love the Lord their God with all their heart and to teach this to the children, to put it before them all the time. He's, He's telling us that the clue here to getting victory constantly, daily, in this battle, the resource of God's Word Psalm 119.9, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. You say, how often should I be in God's word? Well, let me ask you, how often do you sin? Every day? There's your answer. I love what John Piper says. He says, tell me if you can relate to this. Ordinary Christian living is depleting. Isn't that true? Like, it's exhausting. It's It's hard. Here's what he says. We are not designed to live on yesterday's mercies. Be in God's Word so that God's Word can be in you, guarding you and guiding you in paths of righteousness. Finally, fight for greater joy. Fight for greater joy. You'll notice the words that he uses here. Treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. These are value statements. These are statements of deep meaning, of joy and satisfaction, the things that we look to to find life. We start by treasuring God's commands from the heart, and we experience the gospel and the word of God as an intimate friend. You see, the pursuit of sin is ultimately, listen, it's a pursuit of joy. We will pursue joy in sin until we learn to find greater joy in our Savior. And as we treasure His Word and store it up in our heart, as we we memorize it and we meditate upon it and we keep it before us at all times, we're actually learning in that moment how to treasure Jesus Christ. We're learning, listen, how to reject the smooth words of sin and temptation and run towards the sweet words of life that are found in Jesus Christ. All sin is a worship disorder. 
D.A. Carson says this, we worship our way into sin, we must worship our way out of sin. You see, we need help in maintaining a heart of worship and finding greater joy in God. So God, by His grace, gives us His Spirit. He gives us His Word that we might treasure it and be strengthened by it and find joy in it. And He gives us His people, the body of Christ, the church of the living God. And He calls us to spur one another on to love and good works, to encourage each other all the more until the day draws nearer. You see, God is telling us that He is for our joy, and He doesn't want us settling for lesser joys. He's calling us to abandon the fleeting pleasures of sin and to fight to find greater joy in Him. But you have to believe that He is the greater joy. Solomon knew the dangers of temptation. He knew the emptiness of impurity, and he knew firsthand the destruction of sexual sin but he also knew the beauty and value of purity. He knew the mercy and grace of God that washes us white as snow. He knew the grace of God that was greater than all of his sin and greater than all of our sin. And as a father, he writes to his child and he embodies our heavenly father writing to his children writing to help us avoid the pain of impurity and to strengthen us to advance the joy that is found in purity. So may we fear, flee, and fight to advance purity in our own lives and to avoid impurity at all costs. May we do it for the good and the joy of our souls, and may we do it for the glory and honor of our Father in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would give us Oh, Lord, deep and abiding longing for purity. Father, I pray for those this morning, God, who have a past of impurity, a past that still haunts them, a past that they are ashamed of, a past that weighs heavenly upon them. I pray, God, that they would look to you and find in you grace that is greater than all of their sin, past, present, and future. I pray that that grace would motivate them towards gratitude and push them and compel them towards greater purity every single day. God, for those who right now are struggling and maybe losing the battle with purity, Lord, I, I pray that you would give them hope this morning. I pray that they would look to the cross and see their Savior paying for their sin setting them free from the power of sin. God, I pray that today they would renew their commitment and devotion to you, embracing your goodness and grace towards them. Lord, I pray for the kids in this room and represented in the homes of this church. God, I pray that you would guard them and keep them and protect them. Father, that they would walk away from the path of impurity. You would keep them, Lord, on the path of purity. Lord, I pray for the parents who are, Lord, longing to instruct their kids with wisdom. God, increase their wisdom. Increase their urgency. Help them, Lord, to guide and steer the young lives that you have entrusted to them. Thank you for the marriages, Lord, in this room, represented in this church. And God, I pray that you would protect them and guard them. And Lord, that they would be honoring to you. God, give us a deeper longing for holiness. 
make us a, a pure and spotless bride. And God, as we say so often, do it for our good. God, most importantly, do it for your glory, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen.